Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to a brand new criminal case. On the morning of Saturday, October 28, 2017, in Grayleville, in the Department of Haute-Sion, Alexia Davil, a 29-year-old woman, disappeared mysteriously while on her jog. When she did not return, her worried husband, Jonathan Davil, reported her disappearance to the police before himself leaving to look for her along the entire route where she usually jogs. However, the search did not last long. On October 30, 2017, two days after her disappearance, Alexia's half-charred body was found by the police of Saon. In the small village of Grey, where everyone knows everyone, an unsettling wave of shock and panic stirred a strong emotion among the residents. Here was a case of sportsmen and hikers also being attacked. Nobody was protected from being the next victim of the mysterious killer. Jonathan Davil was crushed with emotion and grief. The television cameras captured the plight of a visibly distressed man who was overcome with grief and was unable to express himself. Alexia and him formed a loving and united couple who were married for 10 years, had many affinities and shared a multitude of things in common. According to his in-laws, Jonathan was the perfect son-in-law the one every parent would want for their daughter. But as strange as it may seem, suspicions were soon directed towards this fragile and grieving husband, shedding light on one of the darkest areas and major problems that knotted the seemingly ideal couple, the inability to have children and the husband's supposed infertility. When Jonathan Davil, after several days of silence and denial, finally confessed to murdering his wife, new shocking revelations came to question everything. Why did he kill his wife if he was madly in love with her? Why did he lie so cruelly to his in-laws and deceive the press, the police and everyone else for weeks? I invite you to dive deeper into this relatively recent case, to discover the protagonist and understand the course of it. It was Saturday, October 28, 2017 in Grey a peaceful small village of 5,000 people located in the Sound River. Like every other morning, Alexia Davil, 29 years old, left for her daily 40 minutes jog. She loved running. It allowed her to de-stress and release the tension accumulated during the week. She was a young, blonde, balanced woman with a radiant sparkle. She was very well known and appreciated in gray. Her parents, Isabel and Jean-Pierre Fowlett, were the town's counselor and owner of a PMU bar, respectively. 
a PMU bar is a cafe where people can bet on horse races, which is known to everyone, and this is the hub of the village in provinces. Alexia was the youngest daughter of the Fowlett couple. Her older sister, Stephanie Gay, also lived in the area with her husband, Gregory. Alexia shared her life with Jonathan Devil, a young computer scientist who worked in a computer and office equipment company. They were an ideal couple who were very much in love. They did everything together. Outings, travel, and especially a lot of sports activities like hiking, running, skiing, climbing, and swimming. Very focused on well-being and health. The young woman paid a lot of attention to her lifestyle, making sure she had a healthy diet and constantly watched her weight. On the professional side, she was considered a model employee, much appreciated by her colleagues and superiors. She worked as a product manager in a credit mutual bank branch. On the tragic Saturday morning, Jonathan Dabbleto had several errands to make between his home, his boss, and his family. On his return, he strangely did not find his wife. Alexia usually clocked 40 minutes of jog time and returned home straight away. Out of concern, he sent her a number of text messages. First one, then a second, then a third. But all of them remained unanswered. At half past 11, when Alexia had still not returned, he drove to his in-laws to check if she was there. Alexia's mother, her sister Stephanie, and her brother-in-law Gregory were sitting around a coffee table. Isabel was about to take the stairs to join her husband at the bar. When she heard the doorbell ring, it was Jonathan. What's going on? Is Alexia here? I couldn't find her at home. Now, she just sent a text to Stephanie to tell her that she will be coming in a few moments to have coffee with her and Gregory. But why? In response, the young man burst into a stream of tears, leaving all the other family members shaken and worried. His mother-in-law tried to console him as best as she could. She told him that he shouldn't worry and Alexia might have been delayed by an acquaintance with whom she must have stayed back for a chat or maybe to make an errand at the supermarket on the way back. She assured him that Alexia would eventually return. But Jonathan was pale and anxious. He did not want to listen to any words of comfort. He was certain something serious must have happened to her. He felt it. We have to report her disappearance to the police. There is not a minute to lose. Isabel, please accompany me, he said. And that's exactly what they did. The police note Alexia's profile and details. A young blonde woman, 1.7 meters, square cut, thin, wearing pink shorts and fluorescent sneakers. Jonathan's statement was recorded by one of the cops. He said, we had breakfast together and we watched the series Grinder on TV. Then Alexia went upstairs to change for her job. And she went out. I went about my business. He further elaborated on their occupation and other details. He said that when his wife left the house around 9 o'clock, he too made several trips in the morning. He first went to the computer company where he worked to pick up a printer ordered by his neighbor. Then he went down to the village of Vellet where his mother Martine lived. After that, he returned to Gray and went to the PMU of his parents-in-law. He talked a while with his father-in-law who offered him a coffee before going home. While he was still there, he texted his wife and asked, Still running? I'm going to empty all the bottles you're drinking, lol. See ya, love you. But Alexia had not answered any of his messages. And that's what made him panic. Back from the station, the whole day was spent in gloom and panic started to set in at the young woman's parents' place. Jonathan was right to suspect and report about Alexia's disappearance in time to the station. 
As night fell, there was still no news of Alexia. The hope of finding her safe and sound diminished with every hour. The wait was unbearable. There was rage and panic across the whole town. It was rumored that a jogger had mysteriously disappeared in the woods. Who could have attacked her? Not to mention that the woods where she usually runs is always densely populated by joggers at first light. How come nobody noticed anything? At the Fallot's place, it was an anguishing wait. For 24 hours now, the parents of the missing woman had been living in fear, dreading the slightest phone call, the slightest ring at the door. Their son-in-law, Jonathan Dabble, did not leave them even for a second. Slumped on the sofa, he held his head with both hands and sobbed uncontrollably. The inhabitants of the village of Grey, who were very affected by the unfolding of this unfortunate event, mobilized themselves to organize beats in all the woods around the mills. Nearly 400 people volunteered for these searches. Groups took turns to carry out a detailed search of the surrounding places. The search lasted for two days. Two long days, during which the neighbors did not give up, where they combed everywhere, continuing the searches until late at night. However, late on Sunday night, they were forced to give up their efforts, having found no clues, no trace of Alexia. It was as if she had disappeared into thin air. On Monday, October 30th, 2017, police patrols were sent out in turns to sweep the area. They scanned through the same route as that of the neighbors repeatedly and were about to give up when a few hours later, a young trainee cop called out to his colleagues. He had just seen something on the ground in the middle of a coppice, a sort of white shape well hidden between two tree trunks. They rushed to the spot without any further delay. They realized that they had come across a corpse. The young trainee was right. They fished at the body, which was wrapped in a white sheet and hidden under a mound of branches and leaves. It was half charred. But that's not all. One of the feet was cut off and the victim showed traces of several injuries and blows. For the moment, it was still difficult to identify the body. Reinforcements were called for and the body was taken to the morgue to run an autopsy. A few hours later, the public prosecutor of Hotsan, Emmanuel Dupic, announced the discovery of the body to the journalists during an improvised press conference. It is the body of either a young man or a woman, and it's highly mutilated, he declared a frozen face. The same night, the coroner's verdict was given. It was indeed Alexia Devil. The DNA samples had revealed the identity. The police officers then immediately informed the Fallot family. The following day, despite their recent loss and pain, Isabel and Jean-Pierre Fallot, accompanied by their son-in-law, Jonathan Davil, invited the press to the town hall of Grey, where Isabel was a counselor. The very dignified parents sent a message of thanks to all the people who volunteered and helped look for their daughter. Sitting among his parents-in-law, the widower, Jonathan Davil's pain was obvious. He looked miserable. He struggled to hide his tears and sorrow in front of the journalists. At the end of this gathering, it was decided to organize a white march in memory of the deceased on the following Sunday, November 5, 2017. More than 8,000 people took part in the procession, which spanned across several hundreds of meters. Apart from the inhabitants of Gray, people from other departments too did not hesitate to make an hour or two's drive to arrive at the venue of the march. It was clear that the tragic and cruel death of this young woman had touched everyone's heart. Following the memorial march, a tribune was organized exclusively for this occasion. 
but the parents and Jonathan had an opportunity to read their tributes. In the presence of the television cameras and the whole audience, Jonathan broke down again. He was supported and held by his father-in-law, Jean-Pierre, who had to nudge the devastated husband towards the microphone and hold his arm firmly when he read his speech. Jonathan Davil managed to articulate in a trembling and weak voice. Alexia loved to swim and run, passions that brought us together in both effort and fulfillment. As a couple, she was my first supporter, my oxygen, the force that pushed me to surpass myself. His speech was greeted by a long, supportive silence rather than applause. The news of Alexia's murder was not limited to her county. People all over France were beginning to identify with the victim, especially those women joggers who run alone could understand the new risks associated with their stroll. Alexia's cheerful face was everywhere, on the news, in the press, on the social networks. It created a strong and sincere emotion. In no time, she became a symbol, the daughter, the sister, the wife, the friend, the colleague that anyone could lose under similar circumstances. There was also this frail and young husband who was left behind. He was too young to be a widower. With a tender teenage face, his fragility, his barely perceptible voice, his innocence and constant clinging to Alexia's parents for support and strength was shattering. But who is this Jonathan Devil? And under what circumstances did he and Alexia meet? Jonathan Devil was born on January 16, 1984, in the Grey Area. He hails from a working-class background. His father had an untimely death when Jonathan was only 12 years old, leaving them without any resources. In order to raise her large family, Martine Henry, the mother was forced to take a night job cleaning houses. The siblings were composed of eight brothers and sisters. Martine Henry remarried a second time and gave birth to her ninth child, except for the three older children who had already left. Jonathan and the rest of his siblings, as well as his mother and her husband, shared a modest apartment in Besançon. They were more than a family. The Davils are first and foremost a kind of clan that stuck together because of the many financial difficulties they have had to face. The children had been brought up the hard way with values such as honesty, hard work and savings. But in this working class environment, little Jonathan suffocated and he had difficulty finding his place. He was a shy, fragile child, had a lumbar problem which made him wear an orthopedic corset for a while, with which he was forced to go to school. He was constantly mocked by other boys who considered him not man enough and always hiding in his mother's skirts. He was fearful, fragile, and had difficulty fighting back and defending himself. His cooling was normal. Academically, he was neither a brilliant nor a mediocre student. The will to rise socially had been nagging him since he was a child because his family's poverty made him feel a little ashamed. And then in 2005, during a ski vacation, he met the person who marked a turning point in his life. As a young man, she was 16 years old, blonde and sparkling, and her name was Alexia Fowlett. Unlike him, Alexia came from a wealthy background, where her elder sister, Stephanie, they had always been well surrounded by their parents, honest people, owners of a PMU, a convivial meeting place for all the inhabitants of the village of Grey. The two young people quickly fell in love with each other. Despite their completely different characters, he was very shy, a little introvert, and she was a real laugh. A lively girl full of energy. 
Jonathan was impressed by this little woman who was not afraid of anything and who liked to take on challenges. Together, they would go on runs and Alexia, who was also an excellent swimmer, introduced her lover to this noble sport. Soon the young woman introduced her lover to her parents who adopted him almost instantly. Jonathan immediately felt at ease in his middle-class family, well-groomed and warm, who were used to living in comfort that he had never known. The parents accepted him as he was without judging him, because Jean-Pierre and Isabelle are open-minded people who only wanted their two beloved daughters to be happy, no matter what path they had chosen. Jonathan was totally subjugated by the material ease of his future-in-laws. They had a beautiful house, Jean-Pierre drove a Porsche, the table quality of Mrs. Falliet was like those found in the start restaurants, and the cellar always boasted of the best wines to quench each family's dinner. On their part, the Falliots opened their arms, their hearts, and their doors to him, always with sincere and unfiltered generosity. He who had always dreamt of rising quickly in the society soon got used to this standard of living and adopted it with ease. This was to be his life from now here on. After 10 years of courtship, the two lovers got married on July 10, 2015 at the Town Hall of Grey. The ceremony was a success. Alexia was radiating with beauty and simplicity in her white dress. Jonathan wore a black velvet suit. The civil union was celebrated by Isabel Fowlett herself, her being a city councillor. Just after the celebrations, the two lovebirds flew to the Pacific Islands, a wedding gift from Alexia's father. On their return, tanned and happy, they decided to look for an apartment. But the young woman's family, who were always eager to support them in her beginnings, offered them a house that belonged to her grandparents, which was vacant for a long time. Thus, they didn't have to pay for the exorbitant rent. The Davil couple was delighted. With the housing problem solved, Alexia and her husband set about renovating their new home, painting it themselves, installing heating and plumbing, and furnishing it with taste. Within the first few weeks of moving into their new home, Alexia mentioned the idea of starting a family and dreamt of having a baby. Jonathan too was delighted with this idea and was eager to become a father. This was a glimpse of what life was like for the Davil couple before the tragedy. But let's return to 2017 and find out what happened next. After Alexia's funeral, which was held on November 8 against all odds and only a few days after her burial, Jonathan resumed work at his computer company. He also continued to go to his in-law's house for dinner almost every night, still very distressed and making everyone feel sorry for him. Three more months passed and there was no longer a need for wearing a mask of pain. Jonathan Davil resumed his life under the motto, Life Goes On, and so he willingly returned to his favorite sport activities and even signed up for a night marathon organized in the Jura Mountains in the middle of the winter season. He spent New Year's Eve with his parents-in-law, who lovingly would request his presence at their side daily, trying to fill the void left by their daughter. The Foliots loved and cherished this young man so much. In fact, Jean-Pierre had once said to his PMU customers, I wish everyone to have a son-in-law like Jonathan Davil. While the village of Grey was yet to recover from the attention garnered by this unprecedented tragedy, a rumor concerning Jonathan gradually began to pick pace. What if, after all, he was his wife's killer? The rumor spread like wildfire. And with it, several theories and unimaginable hypotheses started doing the rounds in social networks. Shaken by this absurdity, the Foliot couple did their best to shield and protect their innocent son-in-law, bluntly ignoring any of the circulating rumors. 
Isabel and Jean-Pierre did everything they could to reassure Jonathan that they didn't believe a word of the rumors and quite literally formed a block around him to protect him from the outside world. He was so fragile. In addition to this tragic death of his beloved wife, he was now forced to face a sordid rumor. Apparently, nothing spared him. But who could have started such a rumor? Everyone knows that spouses are always the first on the list of suspects when a tragedy of this kind takes place. It is quite usual to question partners during preliminary investigations and many are cleared after the first interrogation. Jonathan Davil should not even be on this list. For Alexia's parents, Jonathan was more than a son-in-law. He was their son, the son they didn't have and that's how they always treated him ever since he arrived at their home 10 years ago. But the rumors did not subside and quickly became a probability. Thus, as early as January 29, 2018, less than four months after the discovery of Alexia's body, Jonathan was arrested by the officers. His home was searched while the neighborhood was woken up to the sounds and sirens of the police cars. As always, Alexia's family was there to support him at the right time, especially since he was still presumed innocent. But they did not know that Jonathan was in the line of fire from the investigators since the beginning of the case. His behavior was not only observed by psychotherapists specialized in physical language, but also by the investigators who did not lose sight of him either at the press conference organized by Alexia's parents or at the procession at the funeral. He appeared to be always on the verge of losing consciousness, nervously fiddling with his jaws and desperately clinging to his father-in-law's arms as if seeking help. In the eyes of the investigators, Jonathan was the number one suspect of the case. The initial hypothesis of Alexia being murdered while on her jog was discarded. It was more likely that she was murdered well before, probably on the evening before, on the night of Friday, October 27, 2017. And they were not the only ones to suspect Jonathan. Gregory Gay, the husband of Alexia's elder sister, Stephanie, was also seriously beginning to doubt the innocence of his brother-in-law. The reason? He recalled that during the first few days following Alexia's death, Jonathan behaved in a peculiar way. He first wore his wife's wedding ring as a pendant around his neck. Then he started to address Isabel as mom. Certainly his mother-in-law did not mind. But Gregory suspected something beyond the simple and emotional shock that could mark such a drastic turn in the attitude of the young widower. What was more concerning was the fact that Jonathan who in the first statement said that he had fallen asleep at midnight, the night before the tragedy would have lied. One of their neighbors had heard his car entering the garage about one o'clock in the morning that night. However, the company car which was provided by Jonathan's boss to make his professional trips was equipped with a tracker, a tool which records all the movements of the vehicle with a specific time and location. On further investigation, it was found that the car had shown movement at not only 1 o'clock in the morning, but also 7 hours later, during which time Jonathan could have unloaded the corpse of his wife in the trunk and moved it near the woods. And as suspected, the tracker revealed that the white van did make a trip to the woods where the corpse was found at half past 8 in the morning. With time, the evidence against Jonathan kept surfacing. The white van he used to shift the body of his wife had a manufacturing defect in one of its tires the imprints of which were also discovered on the ground heading towards the woods. Another irrefutable piece of evidence that was revealed was the white sheet in which Alexia's body was wrapped was part of a set of linen she had bought a year earlier. Her mother, Isabel, had no trouble identifying it. 
From that moment, with all the evidence to back up the suspicions, the news began to tighten around Jonathan Devil, who nevertheless continued to deny the fact with utmost energy. No, he was not Alexia's killer. He loved her far too much for that. He could never have hurt her, never touched a single hair on her head. But the investigators did not believe him anymore. There was enough concrete evidence against him for him to pretend otherwise. The investigators probed further into the case. They wanted to know more and seek better understanding of this ordinary couple. On January 30, 2018, in the premises of the police station of Saon, Jonathan was already 30 hours into custody. When he asked to see the interrogators who questioned him, he finally had a confession to make. The police were confident that they were not mistaken in suspecting Jonathan. He probably wanted to free his conscience and voluntarily wanted to confess. Without rushing him, the interrogators gave the suspect enough time to catch his breath. Slowly, in a quavering, almost atonal voice, Jonathan Davil said, I think I did that, but it wasn't on purpose on my part. It was an accident. He paused for a while, but the interrogator never took his gaze away from him. He caught his breath and recounted the rest of the story. I put her on gym clothes, her neon pink sneakers, that usually she wears to go running, put on her sunglasses, then wrapped her in the sheet and loaded her body into the trunk of my company van. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Jonathan was offered a glass of water. He gulped it down in one go and continued his story. I didn't know what to do. I waited for a long time in my vehicle. I was completely panicked, lost. Around eight in the morning, I finally got on the road. I drove for an hour without knowing what I was doing or where I was going. It was as if I was out of my body and my consciousness, in a parallel second state. Finally, I decided to take the road into the woods. Jonathan wanted to create a scenario to appear as if his wife was murdered by a stalker who was passing by while she was jogging. So he dressed her in her sports attire and also put sunglasses on her, 
After looking for an ideal place for a long time, he finally hid her body at the bottom of the woods, where he placed it between two logs, concealing it as best as he could with branches and leaves. Then he recovered Alexia's cell phone, took a last look around before getting into his car and drove away in the opposite direction. On the morning of Saturday, October 28, he spent the time moving from place to place, trying to stall going home. He first went to his boss to pick up a printer ordered by a neighbor. He visited his mother in the neighboring village. Then he stopped by his father-in-law, who apparently had found him very jovial and smiling, offered him a coffee and chatted with him. And all morning, he used Alexia's phone to send text messages, first to Stephanie Gay, his sister-in-law, then to his mother-in-law, Isabel. The text messages to mimic as Alexia, as she was chatting as usual, in a harmless and jovial tone. Hi girls, I'm coming home by the house later. Kisses. These text messages were all well received by the young woman's relatives who did not suspect anything unusual. They were looking forward to meeting her that day, even if it meant she would turn up a little late. Jonathan suddenly stops narrating, but the cops nudge him for more. Now that he had confessed, the most important question still lingered. What was the motive for killing his wife? He slowly regained his composure and made an unexpected revelation that immediately cast a dark shadow over the interrogation room. She was hysterical. She used to beat me. She even broke a rib once. She was athletic, muscular, and she was a good head taller than me. I didn't know how to stop her when she was charging on me. Sometimes she would have terrible fits and she could smash everything in her path. To keep her from going, I would often throw myself on top of her and wrap my arms around her until she calmed down, and that's what happened that night. But without realizing it, I smothered her. She was flat on her back on the bed. She didn't wake up. A beaten husband? Was this the ultimate revelation? The absolute taboo? Jonathan went on to paint a portrait of another Alexia, far from the pretty, balanced, easy-going blonde that everyone thought she was. He positioned himself as a victim, a victim of domestic violence, a fact that he had never dared to admit to anyone. Fearing mockery and reprisals, he described her as a schizophrenic, the sort of reprise Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, on the one hand calm and normal, on the other hand verbally and physically violent. Davalentier said that his wife's attacks came on suddenly without warning. Moreover, his lawyer, Mr. Randall's word offer faithfully repeated and stressed on his client's statement when it was his turn to address the press and the cameras, which gathered in large numbers at the police station the day after Jonathan Davil's shocking confession. The lawyer clarified that his client had been continually violated, belittled, and humiliated by his wife, who was subject to occasional dizzying and uncontrollable fits of hysteria. Having dealt with such fury, Jonathan could not defend himself. The words of Master Schwerdorfer were not well received and immediately stirred a lot of unease among the journalists. Basically, Alexia was being held responsible for her own death in a way. She should have not taken it out on her husband. That was the general idea. The news resounded like an explosion in the peaceful village of Grey, which was already shaken by the whole affair and it was not limited to regional level alone. Davil's declarations together with those made public by his lawyer shocked the whole of France and made feminists in associations dealing with women's support for domestic violence and abuse jump out of their seats to take action. 
Even Marlene Schiappa, the minister in charge of citizenship, did not remain insensitive to these remarks. And the very next day, during the assembly of the Chamber of Deputies, she expressed her disgust and anger at what she had heard the day before in the media. In Saon, the police were in a dilemma. What if Jonathan Dowell was telling the truth? What if there was a reversal of fortune, turning him into a repentant victim and his wife as an abuser? As the interrogations with the suspect progressed, they discovered the other side of the coin. Apparently, everything was not rosy in this union, which began to feel the heat after a few years of marriage for a very important reason, the absence of a child. Since the beginning of their marriage, Alexia had made it clear to her husband that she wanted children soon. She felt ready and sufficiently equipped to venture into an exciting maternity phase. They were young, had a nice house, had been a couple for a long time, known each other perfectly well, had celebrated their marriage, had good salaries, so they were only missing the little extra seal of love to their union, a baby. Alexia was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, which could prevent her from getting pregnant, but she decided to go for it. They at first tried to conceive naturally, but in vain. They tried over the next year, two years, three years, but Alexia did not get pregnant. She then decided, by mutual agreement with her husband, to utilize the advancements of science and followed a medical program, opting in for in vitro fertilization as a last resort if nothing else worked. Jonathan agreed against his will, since he wanted to please her. Alexia was put under hormonal treatment, which was a laborious treatment, consisting of a long list of pills that she must take throughout the day at specific times, not to mention injections twice a week. Jonathan could not understand this pressing urge to have a child at all costs, but the results were not forthcoming. Alexia was asked to be patient. Such failures were a common occurrence in the process of artificial fertilization, but she started to lose hope. Gradually, her will turned into an obsession. Alexia couldn't stand the sight of pregnant women or women with babies. She felt terribly deprived and started to blame Jonathan, who did absolutely nothing to help or console her. From here on, their relationship turned sour. Perhaps because of Jonathan who grew more insensitive and detached from their situation. Alexia became irrational, frustrated, violent, and first verbally and then physically. There was not a single day that passed without a clash between the two. The young woman, who was on the verge of despair and visibly upset with the man she had shared her life with, accused him of being the only person responsible for their inability to conceive that he was hollow and impotent man and incapable of having a normal ejaculation like any other self-respecting man. Hurtled with numerous insults and hurtful reproaches, Jonathan always retaliated with silence or when the situation worsened, he used to tightly grip Alexia's arms to calm her down. But things didn't get any better. The uneasiness only intensified and so did the resentment with it. It didn't stop there. When he was not in her reach, Alexia sent him several messages to the tune of more than 20 a day, where she insulted him, scorned him, kept reminding him of how incompetent he was. He had to bear her daily psychological harassment, which he tried to blame on the hormonal treatment she was under. He began contemplating their separation as their relationship was going down the drain with each day. To echo the already troubling and shocking revelations, Master Randall Schwerdorfer, Davil's lawyer, disclosed intimate details of the couple to the press. One thing is sure, he does not use the spoon. The lawyer did not mince his words and had no regard whatsoever for the family of the deceased, 
the lawyer drew a picture of a castrating, harassing, and dominant wife to highlight the plight of his client. Alexia and Jonathan were not made to be together. This girl, considering her age and her expectations, needed a real man, a man who was sexually assured, and she reproached Jonathan. You are an impotent. You don't have a hard-on. You're just shit. Basically, either you are at the level she expects or you get out, he said. So, here is a couple torn apart because of a problem in conceiving. An unhappy wife who considered her husband as impotent and incompetent man. And a husband who had lost his patience and in a fit of rage got rid of his main problem. His wife, who was poisoning their lives. This was a theory put forth by Jonathan in view of the murder. That he was the real victim of this story, not Alexia. The parents of the deceased already at the end of the abyss since the confession of their son-in-law, who had lied to them all the while, who had abused their confidence, benefited from their generosity, and who especially played them for weeks so well, decided to counterattack. Horrified and upset at the idea of the memory of their loving daughter being publicly soiled, the Fulit family appeared dignified, without any anger or resentment in all the channels across national television. According to them, Alexia was never violent. She did have a character who was incapable of falling into a spiral of hatred. Gregory Gay, the victim's brother-in-law, supported these statements by saying that Jonathan Devil was always considerate, kind and caring with his wife and that he did not seem to be in any way afraid of her, contrary to Jonathan's statement. Gay said that his indulgence as a husband was a sign of genuine love without hypocrisy. The dignified persona of a bruised father and mother still smiling and dealing with the proceedings with kindness instantly moved the whole of France. The thesis of accidental death was far from being questionable. Almost false and fortunately, medicine and forensics are here to prove it. During the autopsy, they discovered that Alexia's body was martyred in a violent way. The accidental smothering that Jonathan spoke about was brushed away. From a clinical point of view, one cannot simply strangle someone lying on a bed. It is a long and painful process that lasts several minutes before the victim takes his last breath. In the end, the report of the forensic experts was overwhelming and chilling. Multiple liaisons, traces of strangulation on the neck, traces of violent blows, asphyxia by nasal pathway were found. In other words, Alexia was simply beaten, injured, strangled, and even one of her feet was amputated by her husband. Following this confession, Jonathan Davil was sent to provisional detention while waiting for new documents to be added to his file. On December 7, 2018, at the request of the lawyer of Alexia's parents, Jonathan Davil was subject to a confrontation with the Fuliet family. It lasted 20 hours and resulted in new revelations of the accused who broke down in front of his mother-in-law and confessed to have voluntarily killed Alexia. He admitted that the thesis of accidental death was false. However, he denied having burnt his wife, whose body was found by the corpse half-charred. But then, who burnt her? An accomplice? Someone other than devil? The answer to this question came during a final reenactment held on June 17, 2019 in the woods at Tan. Jonathan Davil, handcuffed and guided by the police, burst into tears again and confessed to have set fire to the corpse of Alexia after punching her several times in the face, strangling her and having severed her left foot with an axe. His words were reported immediately after the end of the reconstitution by the prosecutor, so Emmanuel Depic in front of the cameras of national channels. 
The victim's parents had finally completed the circle. The relief of knowing the truth after several months of ordeal, lies, and farce was boundless. On June 8, 2020, Isabella and Jean-Pierre Fulliot, along with their daughter Stephanie Gay, were invited as guests on the program It Starts Today, during which they gave their own version of this drama that shattered their lives. In France, between October and November 2020, the Devil Affair returned to the forefront of the media scene, which until now was saturated by the COVID news, and people who knew little or nothing about the affair were also witnesses to it. After several postponed hearings because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the trial of Jonathan Davil, prosecuted for voluntary manslaughter, finally opened on November 16, 2020, at the court of Hotsaud. After five days, five long trying days of face-to-face -face interactions between all the protagonists of this case, what the final verdict was given on November 21, 2020. Jonathan Davil was sentenced to 25 years of criminal imprisonment. He accepted the court's decision and wished to appeal. Despite their rare media outings since the discovery of their daughter's body on October 30, 2017, the Fuliot couple has earned the respect of everyone by their pacifist approach and dignified attitude despite immense pain. They are now trying to lead an almost normal life despite the many shocks they had suffered and assured the process of forgiveness towards Jonathan Davil, whom they sincerely loved in the past will be long and will require many concessions. Protagonist of the case, Gregory Gay, the brother-in-law was accused for passing moment by Jonathan for having killed Alexia. Dimitri Ramello, a journalist from RTL, has been involved since the beginning of this case. He closely followed the progress of the case. Master Randall Swadorfer, Jonathan's lawyer, he accused the victim of having bullied his clients when they were married. The conclusion? Jonathan Davil was sincere in his lie. He believed in the version of his story. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.